Tired Hand by Melissa Skoroda. An excerpt. You hire me a what, Marlowe? Smith asked behind the clenched teeth. Marlowe, Joey said, as if talking to a five-year-old. It's a birthday present. You need to cut loose. You need a break. Marlowe stared at her best friend, the administrative assistant, wondering if she'd taken to drinking in the middle of the afternoon. Joey stood before her, a red spandex excuse of a dress in her hands, a calm look on her perfect face. Yep, she'd been hitting the ball. A break? A break doesn't go, does not include hiring a gigolo for the night. With an expressed high sigh, Joey tossed the dress on the bed. Listen, hun. You've been working like crazy the last few months. Problems with the company. Well, you need to get laid. Yeah, I know, but a gigolo? Joseph Venom. A gigolo? Listen, you haven't dated anyone since Vic. You need this, and Clarice owes me. Only Joey would have a childhood friend who became the owner of escort service. Marlowe didn't even want to contemplate what favour Clarice owed her. There's no way on earth this is going to happen, Joey. Marlowe, no, I'm not that type of woman. It needs. Joey placed her hand on her hip and raised an eyebrow. Okay, I'm not the type who wants a gigolo. Joey snorted, but kept her mouth shut. Now, how much time do we have? Joey's eyes widened. I thought you said you didn't want to go. I didn't want a gigolo, but if we're going to the club and, and, and hiring him... I can't see him sit there all night and wondering what the ha- what happened. Marlowe, no, we're going. I'm going to stand there while you explain. You're the one who hired him and didn't desire to avail myself to his services for the evening. He still couldn't believe Joey pulled this. When we were supposed to meet him, ten, it was supposed to be you, not both of us. Marlowe glanced at the watch. She had less than an hour. You never used to panic. And he'd meet the man, tell him about what happened. I'll get him to take a quick shower. I feel funky. She grabbed her toiletry bag. Don't try anything when I'm gone. She fired from the shower ten minutes later. A grime a two-hour car drive trip after a long day at work washed away. Immediately, she realised her clothes were no longer sitting on the counter where she had placed them. She shrugged it off, thinking Joey must have grabbed them. Up. How to hurry, dressing her Drawing her hair, she wrapped the towel round her body and walked out the door an empty bedroom. Joey? Silence. Joey? An uneasiness crept in her stomach, sowing the contents. Joey? Still nothing. She walked into the living room and worry increased when she found it empty as well. Thinking to get dressed as fast as possible, she dashed to the bedroom. Only his suitcase was no longer sitting in the luggage rack. Joey? She groaned. She placed the room, trying her finger at the thumbnail. Joey was outrageous, unpredictable, unspoken, but Malone even thought she'd leave her in a Dallas room, hotel room, nothing, anything to wear, thinking there might be something in the dresser. She ran to it and again opening, again opening drawers, but as she found each one empty, a panic increased, the pounding on her head became unbearable. Every bit of her clothing was gone, including her underwear. She couldn't believe Joey had done this, but had been best friends since the moment she hired Joey. Marlowe took her, shook her head. Even 
with her over-the-top personality. Joe would never leave in Dallas without clothes. At least Nalo didn't think she would. Marlowe wandered back in the living room and realised the closet door was ajar. She walked, walked to it, hoping Joey had left her things in there. Her heart sank when she pulled it open and found only the red dress Joey had brought her, hanging there, draped over one shoulder with a pair of off-the-black thigh eyes and a racy red push-up bra over the other. Resting on the floor was a pair of matching stiletto pumps. A piece of stage, hotel stagery was stuffed on top of the dress. She yanked it off the, out of the dress, dread settling into her stomach. Marlow, you'll kill me when you get when you get back to her, get back to Abilene. Mister Jones will be at the club wearing a green shirt, sitting at the bar. He's supposed to be over six feet, blonde with blue eyes. Don't don't do anything I wouldn't do. Marlow waded out the piece of paper. I threw it in the waste bucket. How could Joey do this to her? Marlow didn't need a break. She needed was a good administrative frank assistant. She looked at the dress and shook her head. It would barely cover her butt, but there's no way she's going to meet a hired escort dressed in that. She didn't care. She sat there all night. She didn't, really didn't. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, but we have no idea. No, I have no idea for an escort tonight, Marlow said with a frown. No, this would sound right, but how did one fire Jiglo and not sound like an idiot? She hurried down the street to the club and signed when the neo sign came into view to block her head. A flashing red and white letters pierced the dark sky street, illuminating the entrance. With each step she took the set of heels, jarred her feet. She returned to her hotel room. Tonight she consigned the red torture devices to hell and soak her feet for the month. She paid the doorman. Hurried to the nightclub, goosebumps exploded across her skin while she'd stepped from the sultry Texas heat into the cool air of the nightclub. A glaring reminder that her chest was almost as bare as her neck. She shivered and crossed her arms. She was ready to kill Joey when she got, got a get hold of her. A red blanket sheath hung on her hips and rear end, highlighting every jiggle. With every step, the hem of it rose, and she hoped it wasn't rising above the top of the lacy thigh highs Joey had left for her. Malone mentally reminded herself of Joey's description of the man he eyed. He's six foot tall, blonde hair, green eyes, and wearing a green shirt. She glanced around the room and was surprised that more than a couple of pairs of eyes stared back, expecting like a piece of meat from the stockyards, usually... Jane Malone Jane Smith did not attract attention, small boned and short. She lacked the feminine attitude most men thought was sexy. Well, at least the little big commercials told them was sexy. Malone rubbed her arms and scrutinised the men while line dancing. Hmm, lots of good looking blondes. None of them were wearing a green shirt. Unwilling to able to abandon her search, she decided to make one trip around the club. Marlow would walk past a few of the tables, looking over the men, but no, not making eye contact. They can her feet intensified with each step. Joey never had left at these clothes, knowing Marlow would never let the man sit there all night. In rules of etiquette, were so ingrained in her, she would have to. She had to tell female hooker. She had to tell male hooker. 
She didn't need his services for the evening. She, it was a commotion to do exactly the right thing. Isn't it so sad? She might have laughed at a foolish fault. She glanced around the club again, almost shrunk under the scrutiny. Ignore them. She could almost hear Joey whisper in her ear, determined to make it through the crowd and find Mr. Jones. She threw her shoulders back, causing her chest to rise and raised her chin and lunch. Then she saw him sitting on the lap at the end of the bar, with her head practically in his lap. Marlow glanced at the woman, gave her a dirty look, then cut a look to the man. Though he draped his arm around the, the back of the other woman's hair, he was staring at Marlow. She shivered as his gaze dropped down from his eyes, then to her shoulders and fighting her breasts. He continued a frank assessment down to toes, then all the way back up. One corner of his mouth quivered, quivered Quirked, eyebrow was raised. Before she allowed herself to contemplate how to approach the paid escort, he leaned over and whispered something in the woman's ear. He smiled, smiled, and she shot Marlow another dirty look while flouncing away. Marlow glanced back at the woman man to find him gazing directly back at her, his intense stare causing a heated blush to rise from her chest to her face. Marlow walked slowly toward the end of the bar. She inhaled deeply and took a seat. Be short to the point. Mr. Jones, I think there's been some kind of mistake. Darling, he said, his voice as smooth as whiskey. You're drinking? I'm not Mr. Jones, although I have to say. His eyes travelled down his body again. I turned her face. I didn't mind taking his place. His sensuous curves curved, and a couple of dimples appeared. She wondered twice, gathering the courage to explain who she was, if she was about in the ballroom. In her own clothes, she wouldn't have a problem confronting this man. Joey wouldn't float. Malone rarely used flirtation. She never understood the finer points. Uncomfortable in any kind of man to woman situation. Malone failed miserably during a last stint of dating scene. Never the one to sleep, spend a Saturday night defenseless. Joey badgered Malone about finding a man. But Malone avoided the discussion. She wanted to find a nice man and wanted to settle down. Malone was looking for a great passion, a dependent man who wanted a quiet life with a wife and kids. A life fine was, um, was fine with her. Joey thought she was a crazy hence to his escort. As, as he sat there smiling at her with her blasted dimples and expectant look on his face. I know that's not your real name, she said, whatever his taxi action had grown more pronounced. But there's been a mistake. He leaned forward, placing his arms on the bar, confused, darkling his green eyes. I'm not the one who hired you, but I promise you you'll get paid. Hide me? He almost croaked. Yes, he said, lightning. And there were a glimpse of her eyes that wandered to his open collar, a glimpse of golden brown hair curled in the V of his great green shirt. She found the urge to, t- to tell him to button it up. At the same time, she couldn't resist reaching out to comb her fingers for those curls and feel the hard, hot muscle in his chest beneath them. Why the hell was she thinking about his muscles? A friend thought that it would be a good idea to hire a man. For me, for my 13th birthday, she watched the dimples as fear. Like I said, you'll get paid. I just can't see a good reason to hire a man, even if he's built like a great yard. He realized he raised one thick blonde eyebrow. But at least... Let me buy you a drink. She searches his expression in his face. Over the perusal, he didn't show any more, more interest in her than he probably would have shown any other woman. He definitely wasn't overcome with lust. She said, sure, but 
Then I only have to go. Lorraine Carmel stared at the peanutty woman beside him. She placed an order in the bar with the bartender. He felt freed and look his fill when she ordered over the bar and le- ordered a club soda. She was little, small boned of a She couldn't be more than five foot tall and stocking her feet. When he first saw her walk for the club, he thought she was taller. But the killer fuck at me heels she wore gave the illusion of height. Did he don't matter? He loved all women, tall, short, skinny, fat, and any colour colour. He liked them. He didn't particularly Percy loved as Marie's brother, Heath, claimed he did, but he never was never lost for date. He strict guideline when he ended up in his bed, when we dated, knew the scorn, a fun time, no strings attached. He'd been sitting on the end of the bar, waiting for Heath, thinking he'd turn, stood up Liam from one, at work uh, once again. It was about the cool night when he caught he called Heath to grip, grip, gripe at him, with a flash of red caught his eye. What struck him first was the demeanour she carefully stepped through the crowd, avoiding contact with most of the men the people there. She walked across the floor like a deb on the night of her coming out, but dressed like sin. A dress the red dress she wore left little to her imagination, it clung to every curve she had, a mass of inky hair cutsaded down her back, making her want to bury his face in it. He couldn't make out the colour of her eyes, but she looked at some shade between blue and grey. Surrounded by thick lashes, she wore a little makeup, but be- her bee stung lips were painted almost the same shade as red as her dress, and she's the cutest little overbite. At the moment, she's worrying her bottom lip when he realised he was staring at her mouth, wondering what it tasted like. Even felt he met her legs and saw apparition. She must have strutted through the bar like a selfish old woman, but she was nervous. Well, who would be when trying to get? Had a paid escort to take a hike. Now, Miss, he said, leaving it hanging and waiting for her to answer. Smith, Jane Smith. He chuckled, Smith and Jones. He sat up straighter, thrusting a chest out. My real name is Smith. And interesting, maybe Mrs. Smith was using another first name. Mrs. Smith doesn't. Don't you explain why you don't need an escort for the evening? He knew he was attracted to the opposite sex and enjoyed it when a woman was bold enough approach him just as much as he enjoyed chasing them but in all these years he never had one of them p- trying to pick him up claiming she paid for him for the evening not anyone else not someone else had to paid Web of Seduction by Brittany L. Devine Prologue, Dominique. Present day, my name is Dominique Braxton. I'm just a normal guy who lives a normal life. I like action movies, poker night, with the fellas and a good lay now and then. I give a woman flowers and candy, and I'm supposed to, and treat them with respect. A throat clears in a dark room. Now I'm agitated. Fuck it. I'm a damn-down criminal, half-sex demon. I destroyed a woman I loved. That's my life. <coughs> I smiled deviously when the shadow belonging to the little nuisance sitting across me jumped at the sound of my loud voice. I can't see her face, but I bet her eyes are nearly popped out of her blonde head. The only lights in the pitch black room were coming from a door so far to my far right and the bright bulb 
a blurred from the camera popped to on Mrs. Miss Goody's shoes, two-shoes desk. Mr. Braxton, there's a lot more to it than that. And could you please refrain from using that kind of language? Fuck you. What's, how's that for language? But as miserable as I am, I made a promise. This had to be done. I signed defeat and speak as I, with as much fake cheer as I can muster. Fine, let's begin with my employment. <clears throat> Unless I'm buried a deep balls deep. Unless I'm born buried balls deep in pussy. And time is spent running my own criminal organization. The only difference between myself and other mafia bosses, instead of playing on the weak, I shake up the rich and powerful. A genius tycoon, a head for numbers, has made me obscenely rich. One of few men feared by by the one percent. Everyone from diplomats to keep drug kingpins dances eagerly to my tune. I help them keep their wealth in the electronic age, but I also take it away. Imagine a person knows where the richest, world's richest people keep their funds, can access them at any time. I'm a supernatural intellect because I'm a Carolinian. Carolinian is my demon-human hybrid. A long time ago, the crater made the first man. Some of the big guys' soldiers decided to make trouble. He had them exiled in mutineers from eternal lands, a lot of little buggers in the world, underworld, never to be freed. Who knew it? They liked to fuck. One of the X-Files remains including prison, the kids, also known as demons, slipped out when the earth gets ingested and belches on parts of bars that don't in the form of a bad volcano. <coughs> <coughs> One of these crumb snatches escaped my father, Manteus, an incubus. Dear old dad himself fell in love with a turkey woman called Butterfly. A cunt must have been some powerful shit to make a damn demon fall in love because this ain't normal pussy fopal. There's a lot more to the story, but I don't have time to explain all the bullshit to get, just deal with it. My grandpa is Satan. I'm, I'm for one, I'm glad I wasn't left to bounce on his knee. That means I'm half sexy and half human. Anyway, being a cameo means I can have etched, some, etched, some cool etches that males, other males don't. I'm stronger and faster than the average man, have the power of a sexual persuasion. Can use it to carry out some pretty bad shit. I've got few witnesses, but those just will remain my secret for now. Trust gets people killed, and so does love. Probably to the of me falling in love to slim to them, unless you count my bulletproof black answer to Martin Vanquish. Nope, love was not my in my DNA to her, my sweet thing. I drugged her and fed her, and cravings and addiction, addiction provided. She loved every minute of it until the monster came out. But then it was too late. I was the instrument of her destruction. I knew exactly what she thought. Just before the meeting of her demise, she wished she never laid eyes on me. Too bad the woman can't take back pussy. Chapter 1, Xena, one year ago. Love tunes echoed through the elaborately decorated red and white ballroom as my husband and I finished our first dance and wife. As husband, man, and wife, I never thought I would be so happy. We're in love despite being opposites in every way. Each way. I taught ancient history at NVU, but was born and raised in North Carolina. In short, I was a country girl who liked to catch clean and fry my own fish. I walked 
around barefoot every chance I got, even though I could, ne- I could change my own oil. There was no way I would become that. I would, because I must, I had to snag the billionaire. Gabriel Duncan Sinclair was the CEO of Helicom, a parent company of several ocean rooms, galleries, theatres, and anything else that dealt with the arts. Six foot tall, with honey blonde hair, dark super eyes, and a body like a wrestler. He used my everything, and I was his. I was over the moon, and I had to pee. Gabriel gave me a long but tender kiss, and I, I excused myself to a lady's room. I was fighting my Vera Wing wedding gown. I did my business, stepped out into the hall. I was nearly run down by a woman with greying urban hair. She was in her forties, had an astonishing number of freckles, and wore a black A-line dress, a patient. There were pumps to match. I assumed she was one of Gabriel's guests, attempted to move around her. Excuse me, I said before I tried to, to pass, but she stayed right in front of me again. You don't know who I am, do you? She sm- laughed in amusement. Her eyes flashed with anger. No, should I? I'm here to save your life. I, it's not, I did not like the, where the conversation was going. The girl was supposed to get into a catfight on wedding day, but it was done part of it. But it, it was part pastime for Pitelus. You look a little odd for Gabriel, but you're not the first shanker to call out the woodwork since he and I got together. I'll put it. I don't put it, I didn't put them up with them, and I won't put up with you. I signed my five foot nothing frame right up to her. Looked her dead in the eye, put her, my hit, hand on the hip and glared. My southern accent always came more pronounced whenever I got angry. Now that get the hell out of my way, but I stomp my mud hole into your arse. You're just as blasphemous as your husband. Maybe you helped him. Is that what, what gets you two off? A glass is shot, but the intruder was determined to be heard. Madeline was my niece. She's only 17, and your husband murdered her. When they found the body, had been torn apart. Hi, welcome to the Halsey podcast show. And today I'm talking to... The person behind the Black Case Diaries movie dash TV podcast. Tell us about you and your podcast. Our names are Robin, Marcy and Adam. All three of us have degrees of individual media. We love film and TV. We've been bonding over it for 14 years. Our podcast is called The Black Case Diaries. We discuss any topic related to film and TV. We try to ed- educate audiences about unfamiliar topics or le- trying to le- learn ourselves. Our listeners seem to blo- belong to to be in the 2030 range. We try to appeal to everyone who's passionate about movies and TV. Why? How did you start this podcast? We, the podcast started a few years ago when two of our co-hosts lived together. We realised that we had strong rapport and listening to other podcasts made us want to try it ourselves. Adding the third person was just things clicked. Our motivation was to be part of the broad conversation. We were all introvert and the podcast was giving us a chance to learn more about who we are 
and what we have to offer others in terms of knowledge and entertainment. We started recording episodes about five years ago, but I never put them anywhere. In November 2018, we decided to start trying again and force ourselves to put the episodes out there. So technically, it took us a few years to release our first episode, but when we launched, it took a couple of weeks. How do you find time and funding to do this podcast? We realised release an episode each week. Sometimes we release a smaller episode along with a full-length episode. We typically spend a week gathering necessary information on days for the episode. The interview process usually takes five to eight hours. It usually helps that we created a consistent schedule for recording and releasing. We record on a specific day and work around it. One of us has a more flexible work schedule is able to work more on marketing. What do you gain from podcasting? We don't currently take sponsorship. We would like to eventually. A podcast has benefited us greatly through friendship and education. We're still new and we feel we already learned more about filming each other. Keeping an adult relationship can be difficult. Podcast has given us the opportunity to spend more time and eat with, with each other, doing something we love. We also feel our podcasting has given us a creative outlet, not only through our voices, but through the ideas behind each episode of marketing. How do you produce yours podcasts? We use Tenno microphones, one Scarlet Unisodium microphone, a 2000 audio mixer. We call straight into H4 Zoom. It takes SD cards. All the editing is done in Android Premiere. You may have, we have not had any guests yet for the podcast. We may in future. Interviewing isn't really part of our format. Every time we record, we decide a topic for the week, next week's episode. Then we create a Google Doc and we all edit throughout the week. This is where we add research and links to our discussion. How do you market your podcast show? Our main show site is Podbeam. We direct most of our listeners to this site through Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher podcast provides us with analytics so we have a breakdown of excretion sources right now itunes has been our highest previous percentage of listeners we find instagram and twitter to be the most helpful with arguing instagram provides us the ability to use our visual strength in order to market new episodes we create unique visuals for each episode to draw in listeners twitter allows us to directly communicate directly with listeners and other podcast hosts. We also create physical meeting tools, magnet shirts to get the word out. What advice would you share with aspiring new podcasters? Well, we're still at a very new podcast. You learn from, about us on our blog, 
wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Our journey, we have learned how important it is to be different yourselves from other podcasts. We understand how important it is to establish a voice early and confident in your story. You are. We started to recognize that time committed, time commitment, podcasts and tales, which much more and more we realized we discovered that growing equipment, having established space available, but with good connect, content is key. We're still learning every day, and that's what we love about this process. Other podcasts are a great respect resources that you start out. We found it helpful to watch the process, learn about pros. Groups like Podify, P-O-D-E-R-N, P-O-D-E-R-N, Family, are incredibly helpful when it comes to networking. Where can we learn more about your podcasts? Backcasediaries.podbeam.com Twitter slash backcasediary Instagram.com slash backcasediaries podcast HL equal EN Facebook.com Backcasediaries podcast dash question mark moral equals admin dash to do dash tour back case diaries dot wordpress dot com Doby Doby Go to School written by Susan Pennington Illustrations by Mike Moose Breakfast Mouse style It was a beautiful August mutt day the sun was shining a gentle breeze Blew through the yard. The leaves and the trees and the flowers in the yard seemed to be waving good morning to Susie as she burst through the front door into the porch. She had some exciting news and eager to share it with her friends, Toby and Doby. Quickly she climbed into the big green wicker chair below the mouse house. Aunt Olive hung up for them. Using her fingers, she tapped on their front door. From inside she could hear Doby yell, I got it, Mum. Mother, hey Susie, Doby said, opening the door. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, it is, Susie agreed. I invite you in, but the, you are too much, you're much too big, Doby laughed. He liked teasing Susie about how big she was. Susie kibbled and gave Doby a poke with his tummy. Silly mouse. Mother mouse, wondering whom her little one was talking to, came to the door. She wore the apron. Aunt Olive had sewn for her. I was wiping a paws on it. Good morning, Susie, Mother Mouse said. You up and I'm about early? Are you cooking breakfast? Something sure smells good, Susie said, sniffing at the air. Cheese omelettes and cheesy biscuits, Mother Mouse answered. Would you like to try some? Mmm, yes, please, Susie said, a great big smile on her face. Okay, I'll be right back, Mother Mouse said, turning towards the kitchen. Just then, Toby appeared at the door. What's up, he asked. Your mother's mum is getting me some of your biscuit breakfast for me to try. It's most delicious. Your mum is getting some of your breakfast for me to try. It's most delicious, Susie told Toby. Mother makes the best cheesy omelettes and cheesy biscuits for everyone. It says, it, it see if I, Toby, and I can bring ours outside too. 
Be right back, Toby said, running towards the kitchen. A packet for breakfast? Toby said, how cool is that? Pretty cool, Susie said. I'll go and pull out my picnic table for us. Susie jumped on a chair and ran. Susie jumped off the chair and ran to the corner of the porch where Mummy kept her picnic table. It was pretty heavy. Susie tugged and tugged. Soon she had it out in the sunlight where he would enjoy their breakfast picnic together. Just as Susie got it placed, Toby and Mother Mouse came to the door carrying plates. Susie reached up and took the plates at one at a time and Mother Mouse and placed them on the table. Then she took Toby's and put them on the table too. Mother went back and got three nibbles full of milk as Toby and Toby scurried down to the table. When Mama has returned, Susie takes, took the nibbles out of her milk and placed them on the table next to the plates. You children enjoy your breakfast. Don't forget to put your dishes up here on the pouch before you run off to play, Mother Mouse instructed. We won't forget. The three friends echoed, settling down to enjoy their breakfast. There are the best cheesy biscuits I ever had, Susie said. Of course, I don't think I've ever had cheesy biscuits before. Probably not, Toby said. Only mice hate cheese. Don't be silly. Humans eat cheese too, Toby said, shaking his head at his goofy little brother. They do, Toby asked with surprise. Of course we do, Susie said. We eat lots of Highlander Imagine. For lovers' sake, Wendy Lou Jones. He's coming for me, Duncan. Duncan threw his arms around Teresa, the woman he loved more than his own life. As by his own act, his false will alone, he could sometime, somehow halt the impending nightmare which is folding around them when an apparent drug-related shooting nearly takes Tressa Noel's mortal life. Duncan richly searched for the shooter to bring him to justice. Immortal Am- Amanda is on the prowl again. Her female instincts led them her back to the irresistible Duncan. Complicating matters. Trees is unexpectedly confronted with a secret information she could have not foreseen coming, threatening to unravel the bond between her, her ugly, handsome, immortal Highlander. But it isn't Amanda's wanton desires Teresa has to worry about. With hostile immortals close in, Duncan, Cantina in hand, perhaps to take heads in a fight to return their knowledge to normal. But can he detect the real threat in all the confusion around him before it's too late? Highland Imagined is a series based on the original Highlander TV series. The book reboots the series just five seconds before his bullet hits Treta in the TV episode called The Darkness and asks the question, who, who would, how would everyone's life change if Treta had survived? This work of series was fully authorised by David Panzer Productions and Studio Canal Films Limited. However, the content is wholly on an old K Books original creation and new action series. Wise, the Oil Ninja and the Missing Rainbow Diamond by Shininda Coffin.
why he's the owl ninja, was born in a dojo and raised a pet with training ninjas. He was very wise as he started to copy what he saw the ninjas learning. Wise wanted to use his skills he learned at the dojo for the good. When he was let to go to be on his own, with his own kind, that's what he did. Shaman Pathways, Black Horse, White Horse, Abstract. In February, Moon Books is publishing Sherman Pathways, Black Horse, White Horse, a book aimed at pagans, witches and shamans, as well as at anyone who loves horses and horses' lore. The book is written by Missouri Trucco, author of the traditional witchcraft of urban living, traditional witchcraft of the seashore, and by this spell book and candle. Here is an extract from the Black Horse, White Horse, printed here with permission from Moonbooks. Superstition. Many of the traditional superstitions connected with any divorces make it very difficult to separate historical fact from fiction. From my early times, horse skulls and bones were among the first, most frequent finds of the old buildings. They were obviously placed there as some form of protection against malevolent forces. A church in Elsdon, Northumberland, has, su- has three such skulls in its tell- bell tower, and more than 40 years, for more than 40, were discovered screwed to the underside of the floor in a portway public house at Stratton-on-Wye in Herefordshire. A custom of severing a horse's head for the purpose of acquiring a protective relic may have given rise to numerous headless horse legends that abound in British Isles. It stands to reason that the discovery of horse remains by this head will give rise to any all sorts of grisly tales told over a pint of ale. Horse bones are discovered in, in the foundation of horses during reverberation and it always houses during reverberation. They were often removed when the owners discovered the macabre remains. Folklore maintains, however, that the bones serve as amulets to keep away the nightmare. According to the local tradition, if the family owned a good house and it died, it was a custom to bury the head under the house to retain the virtues of the animal and protect the building, its occupants from evil. By removing these equine amulets, the new owners may be caught in disaster by allowing superstition and screamishness to interfere with protective right. For better to reconstruct them and inter the remains rather than tempt providence by getting rid of them. This has been viewed as pure superstition in these days, scepticism, but a disturbance of specialists of swiftly intended remains may invite unwanted psychic phenomenon as a result. The supposed magical influence of horse survives. Horses survive in folklore, such as placing felt's fair around the throat of a cure Grout or eaten in a sandwich to ward off women, worms, and a child. 
Well, the pair, pairings from the horse's hooves are given to the dogs to kill worms. It's also thought that tail hairs were left in the water. They could turn into eels. John Wesley and who had an interest in the birth photograph of these, recorded the dried, powdered horse furs, colosols found on the inside of a human's leg, animal's leg, could, could be taken to an infusion of warm milk and an ale. The cure for a whooping cough was to allow a pilot horse to breathe on the patient. Consume, consumption or chest complaints could be healed if a sufferer went to stay was inhaled the breath of any horse there. Whether love look whether law tells you if a group of horses been standing with their backs on a hedge, it's an omen of bad weather. Wispy chloroform clouds have long been known as mares, tales of frillies tales are often used to forecast the weather. For example, males' tails moving infinite self indicate uncertain weather in the way. It's especially true during the summer half the year. According to Paul John Goldstock in Weatherwise, mares' tail contrast should be considered the weatherman's cloud, for it covered it for it's covered by thirty three different points of weather law that reliably predict future winds. Rain or fair skies and perfect summer days. There are many of superstitions contained, being connected. There are all manner of connect, superstitions connected to cure colour horses. In many areas, it's said to be unlucky to dream of white horses. The black horse is unlucky, and Payed is unlucky. In other regions, the reverse is true. In certain rural areas, it's said to be unlucky to meet a grey white horse. With a, while setting off on a journey, and those encountering one should spit on the ground for good luck. Who was snorted during a journey? This is considered a good omen. As has, as you see, some people on the meeting on White House will keep their fingers crossed until they say dog. My grandfather made me keep my fingers crossed all the way to town and back again because we happened to see White Horse in the field just after we left home and couldn't find a dog anywhere. Remembers one horsewoman. Shaman Pathways is available on Amazon.com at a price of £6.99. It's your damn story, D.R. Downer. Chapter 1 Meet and Greet. All right, I'm off for the day. You're coming, Nicole? Angela asked her next cubicle neighbour, pick up her bag. Nah, got shit to do, Nicole replied, without even bothering to look up from the computer. Oh, come on, girl, it's 5.30 and it's Friday. Live a little, will you? I'm living, I'm breathing, aren't I? That's not called living, Nicole. It's called being alive. There's a difference, you know, a huge one, Angela quipped. Nicole finally looked up and flashed a fake smile at the other girl. What would it take for you to leave me alone? I have told you a zillion times that I'm not like you. I hate parties. I hate gossiping. I hate dolling up for the boys. I actually detest makeup. 
by amount of cosmetics you Barbie dolls put on your face daily. I can't even call it makeup. It's bloody disguise. Now please leave me alone, because I said I've got shit to do here. It been it took quite a, it took a while for Angel to pull her hanging mouth back up and regain her composure. Yeah, right. As if any of makeup can make your ugly fat, fat face of yours look human. Go fuck yourself, Nicole. No one, nobody likes you, you fat cow. You die alone, you know. Angel and Mark walking towards the door. Bye bye, girlfriend. Nicole exclaimed, adjusting glasses and dunking her head back into the commuter. Mission accomplished. Another one run down, she thought, of herself and smiled. Usually everyone left the office by six in the evening, but being a Friday, every light in the office was completely out, except the one in Nicole's cubicle. She was desperately working to find a way to hack into one of her clients' websites. She was getting desperate with each passing second. After all, she was the most revered and respectable ethical hackers this side of the world. It all started three years ago, back when she took part in a hacking challenge phone open to the public by the Pentagon. There was a cash prize of $100,000 for anyone who'd be able to hack into their systems in one hour. Nicole reached a venue 15 minutes late with denied entry inside. Dejected, she went and sat on the pavement. Two minutes later, a series of messages started popping up on every computer saying inside the Pentagon. Jingle bells, jingle bells all the way. Oh, what fun it is to hack the unexpected prey. Fifteen minutes late, he didn't even let me enter. There was traffic, goddammit. Everyone's come on, come on out with my my hundred thousand a letter of apology. My name's Nicola Griffin Henderson. I'm sitting on the pavement outside. BTW. Change your Wi-Fi code. Password. One, two, three, Santa is real. Four, five, six. So is so two, three, seven, eight, nine. Seriously, guys. Inside the pentagram, the head of technology department turned and glared at one of his teammates, who had already started to clear off his disk by then. For the next two years, Nicola had worked for the Pentagon, helping them make making their systems a website completely hackproof. By the time a contract with the Pentagon got over, Nicola and more than a dozen top software bands lined up that hour. She chose Red Ants included for two reasons. One, they were the technical leaders in ethical hacking, and two, the officers were walking distance for Walter Parkway, where she stayed in a studio apartment. Chapter 2. It begins. It is almost 9.30 by the time Nicole reached back home. She was also to cook. She ordered her food from her favourite Chinese restaurant by the way back on the way back and found the delivery man standing outside her door as she called out came at the elevator. She quickly paid him, grabbed a parcel and went inside. After a dirty bath and changing into comfortable nightwear, she sat down on a cocoon chair with a book, a glass of red wine and takeaway container. Expertly she placed the book in between her folded legs started a daily routine of drinking, eating, and reading. These things have been her only hobby since she had shifted to New York from her parents' place in Baltimore, Baltimore, Vermont. Half an hour into reading, Nicole tossed the book on the couch. What crap is this? Is it what she gets passed around for literature nowadays? She kept the wine glass and the food container on the side stall and grabbed her laptop from the study table. 
She opened up the browser and went on a famous e-book render site to look up for a suitable read for the evening. After spending almost half an hour on site, she still couldn't find the kind of romantic read she had in mind. Besides, she had enough. She closed the browser and brought up the obscure Rotel site on the black web. Not many people knew about the black and dark web because not many people were attended, were attended to. It had taken her almost a year to get entry into it. Now, since she's a recognised member, she had access to any and all of the dark secrets of the world. She was a voracious reader. She never went for the famous titles. Instead, she looked for the ones that were not so famous yet, but deserved to be. The unknown, the unforgotten, the hidden gems of the literary world. And that's the way she saw it. It was only a small window that looked like a sponsored advertisement on the top right corners for, on the screen. Love Kills, available for sale. A one and only copy of the masterpiece by Jomalania Bechakarara from India. Bidding starts at midnight tonight. Worldwide free delivery. Believe in love? You must read it. Do not believe in love? You need to read it. Nicker went on to read the blurb. A 23-year-old fit and beautiful Nicolajina Oblia. Her 20 years old, lean and handsome, Jaya Dixitit were madly in love with each other. What made Nijinia to, to suddenly lose interest in life in general, and Jinhanijay in particular? Will they be able to recall the start of their life afresh, or will they set defeat at the hands of fate and go with their separate ways? Nika knew they were there, and then she had to buy this book, that book. She looked at the time on the laptop. She still had set 15 minutes before Billy started. She went in to fetch her credit card and other stuff that she need for the bidding. She wanted to keep everything handy, and she knew how it worked fast and furious. Bidding started at $10, and she bid 12 Someone immediately put bid 15 She bid 20 Pretty soon, the bid was up to $100. Nicole was not ready to give up. She had that book with anyway. She bid $200 straight away. There was silence for a moment, and it beat again. Someone had bid 500 Oh, yeah. Is that how you want to play? Bring it on, kid, because I've got lots to burn. About half an hour bidding and cross-bidding. Later, Nicola was a proud owner of the book that cost her almost half a month. Suddenly, the phone beat twice, indicating she had a new email. She checked and found it to be from the book bidding site. Congratulations, and you've been the owner of the one and only copy of Love Kills by Jolena McCurry. You will receive it within five, three to five days on your registered address. It said, five days? Why the fuck five days ago, shouted. Then she saw it. Dan, it's hard copy. I thought it was an e-book. Oh, well, I should have known there would be only one copy of an e-book. It couldn't be only one copy of e-book. Funny, not having anything to read. That evening, Nicole poured herself another glass of wine. She put on her favourite song, Wicked by Chris Isaac, on iPod, and settled down for the couch for this for the night. Slippery When Wet's Classic Fairy Tales of Murder and Mayhem by Linda Fenneck. Acknowledgements. Many thanks to Granddaughter Amanda, Archer and Friend, Author, Rebecca J. Martin for the contributions to the cover art. His work was inspired by our love of writing many horror, m- murder and conspiracy songs such as I Can't Sleep at Night, The Henchman's Coming Random, Reduction and Criminal Tales Blues. 
which will be found all major streaming sites under the band our band name Slippery When Wet. Linda Van Sido Count Von Shadow Rapunzel Once upon a time Abigail gasped Oh all these dreary places it must be absolutely worse yet a ladder instead of stairs can hardly catch my breath just for just now just walking You know we go where the work is Amber said Well that's it that is all Wherever here Amber Amber the you're always obvious, oblivious to that what kind of hovel we live in. You think this is what I want, Abigail? I suppose you'd rather not eat. Yes, forgive me, dear. Living over a barn is so delightful. I shall be soon craving hay if we stay here any much longer. At least it's not. At least it's not sleeping in the forest, dining on snake. I wonder what that rich lady in the big house is eating tonight. Better than the slop we are living on, I'm sure. Wasn't, wasn't it you just moaning about being fat, Abigail? Baby fat, like the heifer ready to drop. Maybe I, I am in the right place, come to think of it. You know the barn is not being used for animals anymore. I think you ought to be shut up for now. Well, it still smells to me. Not that It's not you in this condition running up and down for everything. I can't even cook inside of this tinder box. He ignored her instead, mumbled something about her needing his dinner. About him needing his dinner. How hungry he would be, Abigail wondered. If she ever if he knew lately she felt like feeding him poison for dinner. She turned around, taking in the tiny living quarters, really nothing more than a wooden box in a loft. She moved to the only filthy little window in the room and forced it open, and gazed out. Was she was she dreaming? Perhaps it's a bearable. Here, after all, the window looked down on the most beautiful sea of puppies now blooming behind a high wall. A breeze kicked up at the moment, as if to tease her, infusing the air in sweet perfume. She watched men rise as the petals fluttered away, exposing plump, milky pods, perfect and ripe, of a ready harvest. Amber, huh? she called. A voice growing soft and breathy. Come over here. Look at this. What now? Just get over. Just get over here. I can't believe I didn't notice before. Darn it! I can't get anything to eat. Can I at least get some rest? Stop being so obstinate and keep your voice down. Most, most everybody know your our business. Okay, okay. He grunted out of his chair and lumbered to the window. What is the commotion all about? He said, asked, following a glaze. Oh, no, you're not having any of that. You you, you gave it up. I'm going to have this baby one day now. I just need something for the pain. You know that's impossible anyway. We have no money, Abigail. Who said anything about buying them? She hissed. I don't care how you get some. Just get them. There's no point arguing when she got this way. Which is now much too often. He wanted any peace, he'll have to go do her bidding, shaking his head and sighing. Clambered down the ladder into the first floor storage area. It was dusty and long search, but he discovered a piece of old meat hooks and a long coil of horsehair rope. It would work, sweating in the barn, waiting for the dark. He almost lost his nerve. He didn't want to be caught stealing from the powerful enchanters, Dame Ruffle. 
but he did, could not return empty-handed either. Or Abigail would do something foolish, like trying to get them, get them herself, and she would surely get caught. He felt like a thief in the night. No, he was a thief in the night. He realised a falling shrubbery, singing the, ringing the wall, called Claude. His flesh is punishing him for his coming misdeed. It was a new moon, and the landscape was black velvet. But even in the dark, he knew he was staring at what was at least a ten-foot wall. And in the rope, Annabelle tried his first shot, a tossing hook over the wall. He blindly scrambled out the way in the dark as the hook came crashing down again. Down. He didn't, he wasn't fast enough and bit his tongue, suppressing a scream. A shot hook and gazed at the side of his head. Annabelle cursed under his breath, wishing he could go back home. But a picture of raging Abigail flashing in his head kept him at it finally, until finally he had a bit of luck. At last, without putting any, out an eye, he scrambled over the wall and staggered a few, a poor full of blooms, heart pounding a flood of the journey and drove him quickly back over the wall, soaking wet and shaking the thoughts about the heavy conquests of a thief. Amber fled, forgetting the hook on the top of the wall. By the time he reached the loft, he was exhausted and thrust the flowers into Abigail's face. Do you own your evil deed, woman? I need to get some sleep for work. Oh, no, you don't. Not so fast. What the devil is this? I can't make anything out of this. You need to go back and get at least twice this. And you wonder who and more that would be better. You're crazy. That woman's in the trenches. I'm not going back over there. Look at me. I'm a mess of bleeding. I'm smelling like a goat from pouring sweat. Big man crying like a baby over his scratches. You're going back over there. And you're going to get more now. And don't come back until you do so, she is. Ambula was still dazed from the recent blow. He gently probed a growing knot on the side of his head. His hand came away red. He wiped it on the tunic. Okay, I'm going, he mumbled. And sat back out once again, fight the unruly hedges. He hoisted himself over the wall for the second time, but that was feeling weak and lost his grip. He somehow tumbled backward into the ground, with a resounding thud and water of the air escaping his lungs. If fall didn't, didn't do his head wound well enough. He lay there, he lay still listening, while trying to recover his strength from grasping like a fish out of water. Now his shoulder didn't feel right either. As he lay there, again trying to grow his senses, and praying not to get caught, he listened closely to so, that for anyone else moving about. Only in sympathy of crickets played by the, to the flowers. His head cleared at last. He rolled over and began to brought belly crawl back through the back pit, pitch black till he reached the closest patch of flowers. This time he did not timidly pluck a few stems, vault back to the wall of the wall. Said he violently yanked them out of the ground as fast as possible and stuffed them into pockets and any other places thought he could carry some. Still disoriented, he just stood and stumbled back to the wall. Oh no, where's the rope? Had the crickets gone quiet? Now all he heard was his heart slamming his chest. He frankly groped around the wall. Both to his, both left and right, and then suddenly his hair stood on end, like it was an electrical charge in the air. 
He mopedly froze at his tracks. A throaty female laughter floated eerily all around him. It sounded neither friendly nor amused. He threw down the poppies and once again, to no avail, began to frankly scurry back and forth, searching for the rope. From nowhere, a powerful hand shot out a glove, clamped his wrist, a bolt of lightning flashed. He found himself gazing at who had only been the unconscious herself. He had not met her when he had been hired. She, she stood statuesque and stunning, gleaming pattern of hair fell to her wrist, thick waves. It adulterated in the breeze against memori- almost memorising him. He could not guess her age. She would have been twenty, or she could have been two hundred. She scared the life out of him. She gazed at the sky and softly murmured, Looks like the rainy season's coming. His knees shook as he remained in a face gripe. We could do, we can use some rain, she continued. The unconscious turned her head, her eyes on him. They glowed like a cat in the dark. Uh, uh, he stuttered. I was only getting some of your beautiful poppies for my dear trial bride. Please have mercy. Don't you mean your pregnant, addicted tart of a wife? If you don't, if you don't get her some, though, she'll, she'll die. Foolish man, you believe that? It makes you a chance to steal from me. No, she's just my wife. Do you know what they do What they do to Fisa? She coolly said, they hang them. Oh, please, please, he sobbed. I'll beg you. I'll give you work, food and shelter. This is how you pay me. I should have taken a pass on you as soon as I laid eyes on your wife. And yes, I see you too through. You did not know it. She's a bad one. And that poor child you two are bringing into the world, this world, she can only take care of yourselves. And speaking of the child, are you sure it's yours? What could I do? Adabar's voice quivered. He was terrified of the idea of swinging in the rope. He would promise anything to avoid Dane Groff's wolf. It's among those small things you can grant me, Adabar in turn. You shall have all the puppies you can carry. I will supply you a lovely big basket to carry them all. Anything, anything, please. Just please, you gobbled. Are you certain, Admiral? If only turning back the price shall be tremendous if you cross me. His, his wrists grew hotter in her grip. It was near a blazing fire. The heat, was it turning off his heat? A river of sweat flowed down the cliff of his back. I want the child, she said. If it's a girl, you know. Had he heard her wrong? What do you mean? When a child becomes, it belongs to me, she gripped, tightened painfully. His arm, his voice rose when she spoke. You want the child? And it then dawned on him. It was his chance to escape. Rich woman would care for the child, Abigail, would look out for herself, a fanny with a drugged tart of a wife. And likely a bastard child was not all, all he wanted. Perhaps indeed it was not his, even if, she, if he, it stung when the entrance said it. She made him face the truth. Already he was already making plans, he said, to leave. Perhaps later, when Abigail passed out in a poppy stupor, he would cover up his things and sneak away. Dane Groffle was right. He was a fool. Let Abigail deal with her when the time came. She probably wasn't capable of taking care of it. Anyway, yes, Abigail whispered. Yes, he said again. A more convention. Yes, you may indeed have it. His wrist still in a death grip. She ranked him forward nearly, 
knocking him off his feet. He yelped at a sudden sharp pain. She had sliced his finger and jammed it against a piece of staff pot. Stiff parchment. She had no idea how she produced so fast or out of nowhere. Done, she said. I never forget what I said. Do you even think of running off with a child? As long as I have your blood, I will always track you. She quickly dropped his wrist, rolled up the parchment, and she was gone like a puff of smoke. Avidel quickly felt the change in the air. He tried to rub some circulation back in his arm. The crickets now resumed chirping. A breeze whipped up, and he heard a gentle but unspeakable slap of rope swinging against the wall. He stood for a moment, rubbing his wrist and regaining what remained of his senses. He took a few cautious steps forward and stumbled right over the basket. She had promised a heavy rope was already attached to the sturdy handle so he could haul it up when he was ready to go. Now he's free to wander further in the garden. The ground was so thick of poppies, it was easy to grab handfuls and basket. Quick filled quickly. A storm was trying to move in. A fox of lightning in the horizon helped to guide his way. He grinned himself. Soon there'll be some, no more demanding Abigail. No future screaming rat to put up with. He would be free. Abigail was huffed back to the barn and dropped the basket out of front in the dirt. Abigail, he hollered up full towards the window. Here's your darn flowers. No, no response. Typical, we thought. Where was she? He walked around the back of the barn. Then had a stroke in the fire. There was really rigged a pot over it. Oh, you're back at last. She taunted Abigail and said himself. Boy, so long. You're fortunate. I returned at all. She caught me. Did you get them or not? I'm losing patience. Are you? It's a possible satisfy. Yes, I got them. Then why not stop blubbering and bring them over here to me? Abigail retorted. He fetched a basket for her. As much as he hated what she was doing, his curiosity was got the better of him. He watched her suddenly nimble-fingered wife, who normally could barely fix a decent egg for him. Like a masked corpse, he towed over a steaming pot that reeked of lime and barred ammonia. In the firelight, he could see that as Emma girl turned each bit open, some milky pod and held them up one by one, letting their sap ooze into the boiling construction. But soon a white scum began foaming at the top of the kettle water, and she carefully scooped it off. He had seen enough, as he was much too tired to talk. Even his hunger was subsided. It didn't matter anymore to anyone. Anymore. He decided to wait till he heard his first play, and he'd be gone. I'm going to bed now, he said. Abigail didn't even look up for a task, nor bid him good night. After another day, long day's work, Abigail was great. Abigail was grateful for finally collapsing in the chair. Abigail, are you up there? I need something to eat. Silence. The sleeping curtain around their pallet fluttered in the corner of his eye. He snapped his head that way. He rose, walked over and thrust aside. Abigail gazed up from the sleeping pallet. Eyes out of focus. He raised her head slightly. He bothered his sense gently. Her neck, before putting back putting it back down and closing her eyes again. Suddenly, Edward uh, was no longer worried about missing dinner. He could always eat later. He'd gotten paid, with, and, uh, and with Emma's current condition, he wouldn't have to wait all night for, for her to pass out. He immediately hurried to the meagre light, light, light larder. Inside the pack himself a lion's share of food, along with other things. He's going to have to spend the night. 
in the forest tonight without her. I'd be able to move more quicker, even more permanent shelter far quicker. He doubted the, the hunt that enchantress would let Evergo go hungry. No, not with the baby coming. No worries. Evergo would have a, the baby here. Dame Goffle would claim it. As for him, he'd be long gone. Evergo's flowers of joy were finally wearing off. She woke up to fussing that was lightly was fumbling around in the dark. Why didn't he light the lantern? Was he up? What was he up to, to? She had never trusted him. He always was able to get a job, and she needed that, especially right now. She heard him going down the ladder. Where was he going? She decided to follow. She descended on the lower level and called, Emmanuel, are you down there? On the doors was a door. She stepped out in the night. Fingers of lightning shot across the sky. The back lit Emmanuel's back bulk, hurrying away. In a gathering dark, it appeared to be a bundle of his belongings. She didn't know what gave him so much strength as late as her pregnancy. Perhaps the great, the great haze of anger, quickly overcoming her, as his cavalier, cavalier desertion, sprinting the lowered one shoulder, launching herself with a dead weight centre into Elverdale's back, sending him face first into stone wall of curling sack. He began in scattering around him. His ankle and his nose snapped simultaneously. He tried to make a step and screamed in agony. A bitch had hobbled him. His nose leaked blood and he dizzily, he dizzily sank to the ground. The sky flashed again and Gabriel spied a metal meat hook on the ground, winking up at her. Take me, he spoke to her in a poppy out of brain. She obeyed, grasping it with both hands. The sky continued to strobe. Lightning held way and again charged. Abadell now with his back to her, sitting on the ground, massaging his ankle. She covered a short distance. She swung the hook in the air with both hands and brought it down firmly into his skull. She viciously yanked it, back, rip it, rip back ripping a huge piece of bone along with it being a torrent of red and grey matter pouring out of his head. He flopped over into one side into the dirt. Abigail's unnatural burst of energy now deserted her. A sudden pain tore to her sides, doubling her over. Water gushed from between her thighs. Oh no, not now! She screamed as she slipped out of her mess and filling her face into Abigail's, going between more screams. She attempted to roll away. The storm was coming up, and manic lightning bolts shot all across the sky. The earth itself now rumbled violently beneath Abigail as huge drops of rain assaulted her when the untransers materialised in Abigail's water-blurred vision silhouetted against the light snow. I see my child is coming, the entrancer said, lowering, towering over her. Even when in pain, Abigail stunned by the decoration. What do you mean, your child? I figured since you just murdered your husband, you didn't... Um, you didn't... Uh, you didn't approve of our arrangement. Abel grasped a number shot pain racked in her body. Oh no, he wasn't deserting me. And then just one last correction ripped Abigail apart, hemorrhaging her. Till she lost all consciousness, the entrance bent down to scoop out the newborn, while Abigail's life leaked away in the rain, along with her husband's Abigail's. She glanced at the bodies, compost for the fields, she thought, returning to her task. She clamped the umbilical wall between her teeth, nearly neatly severing it.
Lightning continued to flash wildly, and heavens now continually opened, almost as if on cue. Dane Goff stood and raised the newborn to the downpour, and it washed the infant clean. She declared, I see, I shall call you Rapunzel. She approached adolescence faster than an actress could ever wish for. Rapunzel had her monthly a short while back, and the farmhands were already sniffing around like dogs. It would be no use to replace them. They all were the same when they saw her. Sea green eyes and abundance of pale pearl blonde hair and hourglass figure was unmistakably magnet, unmistakable magnet for the young men. And tranches had made her rain in her comely hair, waving into thick braids and pulling under a kerchief, hoping to at least deter the young male lust. Rapunzel soon discovered she could hide things in those thick coils that had continued to grow, grow like weeds, now several times the length of her body already. Her love's one lonely spring morning, a young field hand named Peter spied her sitting on the garden, standing herself. He came up to her and said, You can't, you can make something magical with that. You will make you feel like a princess. He thrust a, thrust a fan, fat banquet at her, and he covered as he spoke. But you must hide these from Dame Guthrie. Meet me here after dark, and I will teach you, you know. As it, as it sounded so exciting to her, she definitely bored at the time. And the only girl she ever saw, even close to her age, was a little one called Red, who stopped from time to time to get flowers for her grandmother. She would never stay and visit with Rapunzel for more than a hello and a few polite words. And later that afternoon, the flowers still carefully tucked under her ropes, a braise, she met up with Peter. He sneaked away to a long lean too, in a heavy thicket of the forest where she stayed. He built a small fire in the old stove and caught, taught her how to turn the pods into magic. He promised as well as he taught her other things she did not know about. She liked it so well. The next day she invited him to the empty apartment for the old st- above this old storage barn to join her in the panlet behind the curtain and still hung there. It was, like it was taking a chance, but there were no insects to crawl over it in the loft like those invading his snack shack, and it gave her a bit of a much-needed thrill to think she could do under a, do it right under the Dane Gross nose. The Enchantress was busy in town a day anyway, and Rapunzel knew she would likely be gone till sundown. Dame Gruffle left at the usual time, but a rock slide happened to block Enchantress's root part way in a trip. It was an impossible without a area, the path to simply steer the carriage round. She so you have to turn to the farm, have to to mend to get back to remove it. At the carriage pulled through the gate, her sharp senses kicked in high gear. Something was definitely amiss. She had barely was out of the carriage when she heard faint laughter wafting towards her. It came from our barn. She was sure of it. Her interest dreaded what she must uh, watch. She must do. She did not hesitate and set off a brisk pace. 
standing beneath aloft more muffled gurgles adrift drifted through the above a mistake of odour premeditated in the dull barn Dame Gruffle had admitted to move in and total silence and made use of it now she reached the curtain and yanked it aside and witnessed to her worst fear Peter made a move to flee and tried to instantly placed but both he and Rapunzel had a chance it's all over Rapunzel she said since you enjoyed it so well up here you'll never leave you'll have sealed your young man's fate as well workers were summoned to the barn and quickly began double reinforcing reinforcing apartment walls at Dame Gruffle's orders and men jumped at her commands like terrified rabbits and could not believe Peter was so foolishly bold they had little trouble realising Peter's fate while the blood-curling screams drifting from the curling house. Even all the hammering and pounding wasn't enough to block out all the horrible sounds. As the men would, the enchanters again entered the loft and sadly shook her head as she spoke. I've had such high hopes for you, she told Rapunzel, though the girl could not yet respond. But you gave me no choice but to board up the loft and keep you with it's for your own safety. I should have learned, known better to then to take on a child of a peasant, such peasant stock. She turned and walked away out of the apartment, closing the only exit door behind her. Then she snapped her fingers at one of the men, ordering them to permanently board it up as well. Sundown approached. A few orange rays leaked through the single small wall window as Peter's funny screams finally ceased and Hansel's trance was beginning to wear off. Morning dawned and Chances went to check on Rapunzel. She stood on the window, slowly chanting, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, get your hair down. Rapunzel appeared in the window and spat. Get away, I'll never wish to see you again. Have it your way then, but you'll get hungry. You'll not be, uh, you'll be so, uh, you will not be so obstinate. Perhaps I will turn later, if in, if in the mood, and see if your disposition is a brood. Rapunzel placed the the small running, searching a way out, but there would be no escape. The only exit was well sealed, and one window was at least thirty foot above the ground. She had little uh, more than a pitcher of water, a basin, chamber pot, and would need a prison. By now she's almost having murderous thoughts about him and child deaths. She also knew that a woman could simply throw her into a trance, and she was helpless against her. Helpless against her, but for the time, the young life she experienced rage, and she was getting hungry. It only made her angrier. It was always almost sundown. Again, the enchanters showed up. Hey, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Why must I do such an odd thing? Because I'm going to get, use it to climb up. You will break my neck if you do that. If not, if you wrap it around the window frame, hooks plus. And by now, Rapunzel was starving and saw the basket. Round Dame Gruffle's arm, at last her long, thick rays tumbled from the window, and then this became Rapunzel's day-to-day existence. Dame Gruffle brought the food and water, and chambermaid would wait until she lowered her discards. On the day she finally decided she was losing her mind, she heard the pounding moves approaching. She dashed to the window, leaned out to see a well-dressed young man astride a fine steed. It definitely was not one of the farmhands mounted a carriage nag. Rapunzel waved and called to him, having no idea he was the king's young son. He was a bit of rogue and enjoyed riding unannounced through others' properties. 
He especially liked imitating the locals when bored. He even got a feel out of watching some of them fall on their knees before him. He halted his horse beneath the window, gazed at the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. Who are you and what are you doing up that window? Asked. Who wishes to know? Oh, saucy one, he fell instantly lost. The other witches of the kingdom groveled at his feet. It's so droll. Come here, he commanded. You still don't, don't, didn't answer my question, she retorted. He puffed. He said, it's just, I am Prince, son of King Nefarious. Well, Prince, why not come down here? There, perhaps you can come up here. Well, why can't you come down as I command? Had she not been so beautiful, he may have been angry. But he was not thinking with proper head. This is my prison, she said. What do you mean, prison? An entrance says, lock me up here. She is jealous because I am so beautiful. I wish to make, make, make me happy. In my prison is a bouquet of flowers of joy. The prince was by with a technical challenge. Never heard of such a flower. But still we prepared to enter the entire kingdom, search the entire kingdom high and low. But how shall I get them to you? Just do it, and when you shall find out, do not bring them before sundown, or the entrance will have me killed if he catches you. The prince returned, promised to return that eve. He had no idea the enchantress was the main supplier of the kingdom, that the girl, or what the girl requested. He did not know if he grew the fields only yards away on the other side of the wall. Or nor did she tell him Rapunzel. Nor nor would she tell him. Rapunzel did not want the chances to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him up to the task. She truly fancied he would easily be able to find out for her. The prince burned his back horse back to the castle as fast as he could go and ordered his personal servants to scour the kingdom of the flowers. The hours called as he waited for a word, he faced his quarters, but as one at the last servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet at sunset, he had fresh mounted, saddled, and rode off to the enchanted domain. Busy pushing his horse to the open, round, open run, he was not, not first as noticed the steam of petals in his wake, but there was nothing he could do but do now. He'd bring them away anyway to prove he's made the effort. Surely he should, should consider the noble jester. The horse snorted in protest, a too vigorous yank on the reins. A full moon glinted off a bundle of braids, giving away her position at the windows. I'll come with your flowers. He thrust the petalous bulbs towards her, exactly as he, she wanted. What happened to the petals? She teased, even in approaching gloom. She could see his reddening face as he stammered. Ah, I was riding so fast that, relax, Prince, I was only teasing. They are beautiful, she said, coldly tossing down a brazen invitation. Confused, confusing Marcy's face. I'm in silly. It's only, it's only another of the evils she's done to me. The room I'm sealed is the tight of the tomb. I feel I should never be free, free again. Young and strong, he easily climbed the distance and pulled himself up to the steel. She begged him to unwind the braids from the sturdy hooks. He felt a bit foolish out of out of handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked more like pale little bald heads. Rapunzel beaming at him. 
uncoiling the last of her hair from the hooks. She pulled it in, all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. He must have been close to dawn when he departed the room, but she told him when he returned to stand below the window and only chant, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Let down your hair. He made it back to stay just minutes while sunrise pretended to be pretended to be stable and he couldn't sleep and went out early for a ride. He was not tired anyway. Elated and spent already looked forward to being with her again. The prince was not able to step away for several days. He did not want to repeat the embarrassment and gift of bald flowers and hoped she could be happy to see him. He was after all the prince, standing over under the window, he softly called out Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. The prince listened for a moment and said then more falsely, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, pretty self, eyes black and soot, underneath she was weaving in place. She looked like she might tumble out on the ground if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up there, Rapunzel. Let me down your hair this instant, he hissed impatiently, but trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? She stirred. You know you have to let me up. Let me up to find out. The prince was by botanically challenged and never heard of such a flower, but he still appears to search entire kingdom high and low. How will I get? How will I get them? But still, he's prepared to search the entire kingdom to get them. But how shall I get them to you? Just do when you shall find out. Do bring them before sundown, or Chantess will, will kill me if she catches you. Prince promised to return at eve. He had an idea that Chantess was the main supplier of the kingdom that quite requested. He did not know that he grew in the fields only yards away on the other side of the wall. Nor did he tell him. Did she tell him? Rapunzel did not want the trances to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him on a task. He truly is a, is a, is a, is a prince. He should easily be able to find it. Some for the prince spurned his back of the halls back to the castle. Past he could get go and ordered his personal servants to scale the kingdom for flowers. The hours called as he waited for the word. He paced his quarters, but one at last one servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet. As sunset she had fresh mounted a fresh mounted saddled, rode off the enchanter's domain. Busy pushing his horse into the over overrun, he first noticed the steam vettles in his wake. There was nothing he could do now. He would bring them anyway to prove he made the effort. Surely she would consider the noble gesture. The horses snorted in protest at the too vigorous yank on the reins, a full moon glinted off. Rapunzel's rays came away in a position at the window. I'll come here with your flowers. I'll come here with your flowers. He thrust the petals, bells, up towards exactly what she wanted. Why aren't it the petals? She teased, even the approaching gloom. You could see his reddening faces. She stammered. Oh, well, I was riding, Sir Thalestet. Relax, Prince. I was only teasing. They're beautiful. 
she said cautiously, tossing down a brazen invitation. Confusion marked his face. God, I'm silly. It's just only another of the evil things she's done to me. I'm a room. I am sealed as tight as a tomb. I fear I shall never be free again. Young and strong, he was easy to climb the distance and pulled himself up over the steel. As he began to unwind a brace from the sturdy hooks, he felt a bit foolish out of holding out a handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked like pale little bald heads. Rapunzel was beaming at him, recording the last of her hair before the hooks. She pulled it in until pulled it all it all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. It must have been close to dawn when he departed her room. She told him that when he returned to stand below the window and softly chuck Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Let down your hair. You made it. You made it back to the stable just minutes before the sunrise. Pretended to be his stable hand. He couldn't sleep. And went out to ride early, early for a ride. He was not tired to ride anyway. Elated and spent, he was already looking forward to being with her again. Prince was not able to slip away for several days. He didn't want to repeat a embarrassing gift of all flowers. I hoped she would pretty, would just be happy to see him. He was after all the prince. Standing on the window, he softly, he softly called out. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your head out, let down your hair. The prince listened for a moment, then more falsely. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your, down your hair. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, beautiful, pretty sight, her eyes black, a soot underneath. She was wearing, even in place. She looked like she might have tumbled out on the ground, if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up there, Rapunzel. Let down your hair, this instant, he hissed impatient, trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? She slurred. You have to let me up to find out. She was the opposite one, he thought. She finally twinned the rays around the hooks and tossed them to him. When he clambered over the, the steel, Rapunzel unwound the hair and drew it in, her eyes are still at half mass. Where are my flowers? What's wrong with you? He said yet again. I didn't bring any. The petals are all blown away while I rode. Her bloodshot eyes glowed angrily. You fool! I can't care about. I don't care about the flatters. She didn't look so pretty anymore. She made her made him uncomfortable. She looked like a predatory cat. I am the prince, and I still I've not stood here and be called a fool. He turned around and leaned up to the window, looking out. I demand you throw out your hair so I can leave. Snatching by the up the wayward garden hoe, she then. Again, then, she'd been trying to use to hack her braids. She could hook them to the window. She, and herself, escaped. She screamed, Down here to hell! And changing at him, she jammed it nearly in the back of his neck. And you will not leave till I say you do. Prince could do no more than gurgle response. She caught in the red haze of anger and disappointment. She racked one of the thick braids around his bloody throat and choked away whatever his life remained. The next morning, Dave Gothel appeared. He runs with daily rations to her surprise. Had a grand horse sniffing him out. Barbatius, eight by A. Drew. Prologue. There was a time in a deep past that gods and goddesses ruled the earth under the watchful eyes of the supreme being whose servants the fates were comprised of three influential sisters 
who are goddesses, de- de- determine the destiny of all beings in keeping the supreme being all encompassing plan for the earth. Back in these days, life was simple but certainly harsher. In the region that was remote from the most civilizations, there was an autocratic kingdom in Antolia. It was enormous in expanse, but yet was not enough for the ruler. He wanted to own the land and stretch it to the horizon if possible beyond it. The more he owned, the more a feeling of dainty like status grew in him. He imagined people would not only bow to him, but he would also pray for him, giving him rise to the belief of his status among the gods. He thought he would welcome the gods, goddesses, mist, and dine with them, immensing, immersing himself amongst the powerful entities. What he didn't know was the great Sibi, the goddess of mother goddess of Antolio, Alia, the healer, protector of these who suffered during the war, challenged times along with her constant companion called Lion, monitored his behaviour closely. She didn't prove how the ruler had become so brutal, daring and try and raise his status to dainty level. As surprising, she was not the only one who was offended. The supreme being was outraged at the way a man tortured and killed the innocents and hindered his progress. Then the king in the region he didn't have yet evaded was the one that neighbourhood in his own, primarily because they kept a low profile and showed no interest in having any involvement in his own role. Along the way, the dissentant ruler thought others might think he was weak, too afraid of a ruler of the Roman kingdom, so he set the province then wrong. At least that was what he thought he should do. His peril faults as a conquest. He raided the city, burning down the entire palace, with no mercy being bestowed upon its occupants. A dismal day, soberly, slightly wept as he observed the atrocities being conducted in the once peaceful kingdom, lying roared with a mix of grief and, and extreme terror, anger, he also watched with Cebu the terror brought upon the friendly inhabitants of the Tokerity. She rose from the ground in a gentle mist and hovered among the dead, her chin quivering and tears rolling down her cheeks. The thunder of rain that could be heard for miles round showed it broke the Supreme Being's heart too. It was not our way to interfere, for the man was in charge of his own destiny. Until the very last day, but not this time, a face known as Cleto, Lagorius, and Avrorus whispered in Stobley's ears as requested by the supreme being, Enough was enough. Silberly watched innocent souls departing from earth and helped them to find peace in their journey whilst rescuing the few surviving injured people. When she satisfied all the proper actions had been taken on behalf of the injured and dead, she returned to the city, raised her wooden staff, Slowly at first she stopped it on the ground at once. A sound made made was nothing less than a premature rumble evaporated through the king region. All the birds flew away in a rush. A sudden hush descended upon the creatures of the ground. In fear growing in their hearts, they quickly scampered away. A last rumble gradually subsided, and followed by a total silence. After which Shabili stomped her staff on the ground for the second time. The rocks deep in the earth even started to rumble, followed by an immense earthquake. It was so great the walls of the city immediately began to crumble. The deep resonance of the quake swamped the screams of those who had brutally murdered the innocents. 
When she hit her staff for the third and final time, a deep gurgling, a rumbling sound grew even larger, louder, and ground violently tore apart, setting off a volcanic eruption right underneath the mighty kingdom. The ruler of his army panicked and tried to leave the city below, above his city, but it was to no avail. The ruler was rueful. He had been tempted to conquer his smaller neighbour, but it was too late for regrets. Several smoothed her anger through the volcano had been quietly bubbling so deep beneath a land that no one knew it existed. She vaporised and burnt everything in the city, along with the ruler of his army, while she rest raised the realm, which was to be higher than the rest of its realms. For days the kingdom had been glowing and hot lava showing, ensuring that all who lived near the city would be un able to come any closer. The volcano formed a series of broad ridges and pinnacles in the area where the inhabitants had once been. Once everything had eventually cooled down, it looked remarkably different. It was a land that was now higher than it had ever been before, with a cold lava now forming some massive, tough rocks. The rock-filled area was dark, imitating yet beautiful. The pillars and large formations that so Shaped by the elements that under control simply, the survivors walked relent- relentlessly to establish themselves. This time, with its tribe, they scraped and chiseled the foundations, turning them into ground dwelling houses, and they slowly became a very tight and selective unit community. For centuries, they retreated underground to protect themselves whenever they heard unfamiliar huntsmen shouts and tremendous. Thunderous hoof beats on on their beasts of their beasts on their be- of their beasts. Turning would make sure they would never again come to any harm. That's that was not all. She bestowed a power upon them to transform for weeks for the ability to soar through the sky. Everywhere under any threat, it took many centuries for the slowly started surfacing, building a new life above the ground. While some still chose to live underground. Barakos was one of those who chose to emerge from the underground. He created for himself a humble but homely two-bedroom house in a small cave. The Stories of the Nice One Poems, Short Stories and Illustrations from the paranormal fictional novel The Nice One by Joshua Chani Perry Illustrated by Judah Claxton. The Nice One Project Reality Redefined. The history of this world begins in the same players, but the story has changed. In Genesis, Cain, envious of his brother's love of his own, his Lord's love of his brother Abel, offering over his own, plants the seed of committing the first murder in mind. He spies Abel in the field, sharpening a medieval tool for shearing. Cain grabs a sharp harvesting tool and creeps upon Abel. Right as he's about to strike Abel down in the cold blood, he steps on a twig, snapping. In half, surprised, Abel rolls around, 
accidentally driving the shearing tool right into Kane's heart. First murder is now an accident, and a repercussion directly changed the course of humanity. The nice one opens in the year 2000 in the Brentford Stratford Street section of Brooklyn, New York City. Bedstay is a large and developed urban centre, the apex of developable explosion. Spectators, forecasters, been making bids for the past several years, develop housing complexes and new businesses, and rush to plant their roots in an area that had been neglected and hard, nearly abandoned just a mere decade ago. Clonfit had erupted all around the globe. Chris Sinekinson is high and corrupt, his ramp, his ramp and such discontent has bred a response for, uh, for response to ARC. On its face, the ARC is a multi-ethical organisation for cultural entities whose private investments hold many sway in the politics of the world. Their ethos increments brought chaos to the world, and only through order and discipline can humanity put itself itself back on.